This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Want to become the sort of developer top rail shops like ThoughtBot fight over? Join Upcase today to get the pro training, insider knowledge, access to ThoughtBot developers, and a community of like-minded learners you need. Hone core skills like Vim, Tmux, Git, and Rails by visiting upcase.com slash half off to get 50% off your first month of Upcase. Let's get that junior out of your title and start leveling up today with Upcase. I had things, several things this week where I was like, oh, I can use that for pre-show banter. And I was like, I should write them down. And I was like, I'll remember. No, nope, nothing. I guess let me start recording this in case we do accidentally say something funny. <laughs> you never know. It sometimes happens. In case we accidentally say something worth recording. <laughs> Hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. Hi, Steve. Hey. Hey, Steve. So we're joined by Steve Klabnik. Do you have a title you like to go by, or should I just say? I I think that it's impossible to summarize a human in a sentence or two, <laughs> and that I'm significantly more complicated than those things. So I don't I don't freaking know, man. Okay. I I like to just say human being. I've actually had like conference badges print out with like company worked for human being, <laughs> and that's always amusing. Uh. I don't know. I do lots of programming stuff. I like to read books uh, and argue about them. Uh, You're at every conference. I, I used to be at every conference. Now I'm only at like half of the conferences. Can Can you confirm or deny the rumor that you only got into Rust because you typoed Ruby as Rust in a, in a conference proposal and you wanted to save face? I can I can deny that one. Although. It, I, I should, a lot. I should start to yeah. I should start to uh, to make that as a thing. I've always said that now I'm just going to only program in RU programming languages. Like that's the only way I'll get into new ones now is if they start with RU. I we've talked about your work documenting Rust on the show before, and I just wanted to say start off just saying thanks. I read a post of yours on the Rust users forum. I think it was uh -huh. where it was uh, you had gone through and done a bunch of analysis on the documentation of like the top forty crates or something like yeah. that. Mm -hmm. And that totally inspired me to like look at the types of doc. Like you had links in there to I think it was Steve Loesch's article. Yes. On the different types of documentation a project needs, and like that totally inspired me to look at just my open source projects and be like, well, I have a README. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what do I What do I do next? Like, yeah, I could totally see why this is frustrating. And like, and then I started thinking about like how I use libraries, and the fact was. I was constantly source diving. Like I never even bothered to check the documentation because I just assumed that it was going to be terrible, uh, right. or or non-existent, or wrong, or wrong. This right. is extra. So I guess that's so. Technically, my job title is like senior technical writer because that's like what I do for work. And so it's funny too because it, even if like it's so funny how systems change the way we perceive stuff. So even though I work a lot on the official docs, people used to like Google for Rust documentation, and then they would find out-of-date old bad stuff and then complain about the docs being terrible. And I would be like, well, did you read the current actual real docs? And they're like, why would I do that? They're probably terrible. I just Googled for something. And so they would like miss my work because they would just assume that the official documentation is terrible because it's always terrible. Um, and so this is like historically has been a problem, although I think by now people sort of understand that we have good docs. So that's hopefully a little bit of a meme that we have good docs since that's what I do with my day all day, every day. But this well, is, it seems like you've ranked up in Google, too. Yeah, yeah. That's another thing is that Google now 
there there was a class at MIT that used Rust uh, briefly, or one of the students was using Rust or something, and they hosted a copy of the 0.9 docs. And so the URL was something like foo.mit.edu slash user slash Rust. And so mit.edu has like a massive page rank. And so the 0.9 docs were really high up for just basically because of that. And we like emailed MIT about it and they were like, sorry, I don't care. Um, so that was like a, it was a problem in like two years ago. You just um, had to overcome MIT's Google juice. <laughs> yeah. You know, no big deal. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Ruby, Ruby had a similar issue for the longest time. It's finally starting to get better. But like if you just Google Ruby and then a class name, the top result will basically always be the one nine documentation for that class. And the, and right. the two X wouldn't even be on the front page. Postgres kind of similarly has has the same thing. Like you often end up on like the eight four or nine one docs, right. but it, they very handily have like like once you know the tricks. First of all, you can always change the version to current in the URL, and then second of all, there's like a header at the top which ten, which lists out the versions, and you can click to go between them, kind of from there. But yeah, also, the basically, none of that ever changes. <laughs> yeah, Postgres is in far less flux probably than something like Rust or uh, like Ember was an exa another example of like a language, I think, a language or framework a tool that people dinged for having insufficient documentation early on, and they put a lot of effort in there and turned that around. So I, f I do feel like it's something, you know, you have to put in the effort, but it's certainly something you can turn around. Like, I think if you asked people now, you know, does Ember have good documentation? They'd say yes. Just like if you ask people now, does Rust have good documentation? They'd say yes. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I tweeted something a couple weeks ago that was like, tests are hard, so we practice writing tests to get better at test-driven development. Documentation is hard, so we don't write any documentation and complain about it. Like it's a skill like any other skill, and it's difficult for sure. Like writing good docs. The difference between excellent docs and adequate docs is massive and takes a lot of work. But going from bad docs to adequate docs is totally achievable, I think. It just is a matter of actually putting in the time to think about it as a skill that you need as a developer. I mean, if I think about when I want to use a library. Uh, one of the greatest possible things for me as a user of that library is to have good documentation. Like I, even the things that I know really well, I still refer back to the documentation for because I don't want to have to have everything about everything paged into my memory at all times. I want to just be able to, I, I submitted a, a pull request to a library that I cite fairly often with an example in the documentation because I was so sick of trying to rewrite that example from memory. I just put it in the doc so that later I could grab it back out. And it, it's, it's been there ever since. Now I use it all the time when I'm showing off certain things. Yeah, I think open source projects typically, like a small library that you're writing, right? You can get away usually with like cramming the like one or two API functions that you expose into your readme and you can dump everything else into the readme. And I feel like Sean and I have talked about this before. I think it was Sean and I talking, or maybe it was Lila and I that talked about the fact that like GitHub making readme so front and center makes the like readme a documentation dumping ground. Yeah. So, but there exists like af as you progress, right? So you, you, you make a nice readme, hopefully it's got some usage information, install information, stuff like that. But as you progress, you're like, all right, well, I also have these API docs. Hopefully you have these API docs. I need to expose these somewhere. So you put a little thing, a little link that says like, go off to my documentation here. And then you're like, my library is getting bigger. I need guides, right? So I need yep. a way to tell people how to get started. Here are some common tasks you might want to do with this library, and here's how you would do them, that type of thing. And for that, like that's kind of where I'm at with Clearance, which is a library for authentication right now right. in Rails. It's like, well, I kind of kind of need a website or something because I don't like. Where do I put this? Do I put it? In, do I just maybe I just make more Markdown files in a doc directory? Like there feels like there's this 
extra jump I've got to make. Like now I've got to go up a level. Yeah, <laughs> right? totally. And it's kind of intimidating to have to think about all of that stuff when I'm like, I'm perfectly willing to do the work to like write some documentation, but then the work to get all the other stuff set up is like, ugh. Right. And I mean, everybody is also like hypocritical. Like, I don't know. I myself, I'm like, I'm the docs guy. and I run the Sember library for Rust now. And I was working on it recently. And so I added, you know, an annotation that if I miss missing any documentation to fail the build, right? Because like, I'm the docs guy, I should write documentation. And so I was working on a new feature. And in order to make the feature work, I added a doc comment that just said LOL to make the build work so I could work <laughs> on the feature. And then I ended up releasing like with that in it. And somebody was like, what's up with this LOL? And I was like, I am such a massive hypocrite. <laughs> this is terrible. Well, uh, and the, and the so downside hard. to those sorts of things too is that sometimes you do just end up having a struct or a method name where the name is really all there is to say about whatever that thing represents. And so if you are forced to put a doc comment there, you'll literally just be putting the function name, but with spaces instead of underscores. Yeah, uh, examples are a nice way to beef up things, even when you know you don't have a lot to say. But the first thing I ever submitted to Rust was a pull request explaining what equals equals does. And that's like the same thing, right? It's like the e-cube function tests for equality and returns true or false. Like, there's not a whole lot to really say. Boy, I wish there was more to say, though, because I really want to be able to override it to return things other than true or false. <laughs> Why do you want to do that? For the, for the query builder. Oh. It'd be if a I can nice use double PSL. equals, it is so much nicer than .eq. Hmm. That's the, the classic overwriter, or overloaded operator's question, right? Like, is it good enough? Is it, is it nice to know that it will always be true or false? Or is it nice to be able to build ridiculous DSLs and, like, I think it depends on the day where I fall down on that issue, personally. But that is one thing in Rust that, that is really nice about docs, is, like you said, a, examples are just always the go-to, like, I need more docs here. And then when you do have examples in your documentation, all of a sudden, you have a test suite that will tell you if your documentation ever just becomes flat-out wrong. Yep, that's my favorite. Which, nowadays, I'm even starting to notice, sometimes in Diesel, I'll make some change that I think is a good idea, and then, um, I'll, you know, I've got a script that runs, like, all of our test suites, and it'll usually, it'll run the doc tests before it gets the integration tests, and then I'll notice, oh, wait, this doc test failed, I'll look at the change I'd have to make to the example to make it pass again, and, I'm, and I've actually been using that recently to realize, oh, I actually don't like this change, now that I can see it in some actual code. Right. Or just upgrade notes, right? You can build those um, automatically, like based on your changes while you're doing that stuff. True. Joe, I was talking to Joel here, and he was telling he's been playing with Elm, and he's mentioning that Elm will automatically handle semantic version versioning based for you. Like, yeah. It knows if you've added something to your interface, so that's like a minor version bump. It knows if you've changed an existing interface to return a different type, so it knows like, oh, that's a major version bump. So I thought that was actually really interesting like take, like you don't have to think about this anymore i'm gonna check your types and yeah. I'm gonna know. we've talked about it but here's here's one thing i love to talk about semver because everybody loves to talk about semver and nobody knows what semver actually even means and like it's fun to argue on the internet but like semver does not actually define what compatibility <laughs> means like we have this concept of breaking change that we as a programmers use as a working definition but that's not actually very well defined because in a super strongly statically typed language like Rust, almost any change I make can break some kind of code that was possible to have been written before. So for example, adding a new method onto um, a struct can conflict with someone else who is, uh, you know, we, we don't allow un totally monkey patching everything, but like 
if you had imported a name in the same namespace, the same as that function, like adding a function would break your build. And so it's actually interesting because like people love arguing about what breaks Semver, but really Semver says it's up to the project to define a compatibility like strategy and then use the numbers to communicate how that strategy works. But like what and what is not a breaking change is very, very different in static and dynamically typed languages. Like basically in statically typed languages that are sufficiently flexible, every change is a breaking change. So I mean, that's hard. kind of true in dynamic languages too, though, right? Because you could just as easily monkey patch that object to have a method with the same name. Oh, yeah. And there's tons of that stuff. And also, I have a conference talk I might be giving this year. And I don't want to go too much into it because a lot of conferences are doing uh, blind submissions and I don't want to uh, color my chances. But the talk is sort of like, what does the system call interface, cargo, and NPM have in common? <laughs> And it's based on this idea. I think I can actually produce bugs in JavaScript based on the versioning issues that we like have. What happened with the libc apocalypse, I think, can happen in NPM and cause actual bugs. But I'm right. working on it. Um, I haven't actually gotten the code together yet. I need to find a weekend where I'm bored. Well, because at least we fail. At least we fail to compile when you run into those issues. Right. Yeah, I, I was dealing with an issue with this in clearance just last night when I was looking at something, and I was like, well. I can merge this change and like what I'm fixing, I consider to be a bug. So <laughs> like, yeah, if you were using this library, like it's entirely possible that you coded around the bug, right? Totally. Or that you, you took advantage of this bug in some way I was not anticipating. So I could do a major version bump, but that just seems I, I'm like, no, I, I consider this behavior a bug. I'm going to fix it. And it's going to be a, you know, it's going to be a, a bug fix release. And then like, cause conversely, if you don't do that every once in a while, you end up with like IE5 or IE6, which was like, we have to keep this rendering engine around forever because uh, we need bug for bug compatibility. It's like, okay. Well. Windows 3.1, I, I forget exactly what the bug was, but Windows 3.1 ended up having a hack in it that would check to see if the current running application was SimCity or not. Because it was important that like Windows 3.1 would run all DOS programs. But due to something about like moving from a segmented to a paging memory model or something like that, the people in it all when the code was written in all assembly, they had done certain tricks that like no longer worked, and so it would cause SimCity to crash. And so they just like inserted basically a shim for SimCity so that it would be able to still be working under this like newer version, even though the thing they had been doing was relying on what is like not even guaranteed to be defined behavior at all. <laughs> so software is hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I, I I love talking about semantic versioning. Like you mentioned, like if you get a bunch of programmers in a room and you start talking semantics, like it's just a circular argument for hours and hours, which I really like. So semantic versioning discussions are right up my alley. Yeah, <laughs> for reasons like that. One that I've been running into in Diesel a lot lately, because zero point five is going to have some like nothing that isn't terribly mechanical for the people who are actually affected by some of the breakage, but just a lot of minor tweaks here and there. Uh -huh. And so the readme has been becoming more and more like just wrong or, or rather wrong if you're using the readme against the latest released version. Right. And we now have at the top of all of our readmes a big uh, thing that says like this is for the code on master. And this will be less of an issue once we get to 1.0 because then it's just those don't become, you know, those don't diverge terribly frequently once you're post 1.0. But uh, yeah. I, uh, I messed this up with rescue real bad. I uh, <laughs> So back when I was still doing tons of stuff in Rubyland and I was working on Rescue 2.0, like most good programmers, I made master the, you know, the next version 
And then I'm a bad maintainer, so I abandoned rescue for a long time. And it kind of just sat there, and people would file bugs because they were reading the 2.0 docs, which 2.0 was not even done or finished or really even working well at that point. And But you like had downloaded 1.0 because 2.0 had never been released yet. And it was like that for like a year and a half or something before I finally fixed it. So, yeah, programming is hard. Yeah, 2.0s are tough. <laughs> I'm in the midst yeah. of a 2.0 myself, and it's like I really want to solve this technical debt that I've taken on, but at the same time, like, it's hard to know when to draw the line and be like, that's enough technical debt and I should release this because this sitting here unreleased is not helping anybody or me waiting forever and taking on more, like, being like, well, I'll just squeeze this into 1.x while I work on this five other things I want to get into 2.0. Yeah. Um, it's, it's tough. Because, <laughs> like, as a maintainer, you don't, you also, it's not enjoyable, it's potentially not enjoyable for you to maintain your 1.x for long term because you you know it's warts and you have ideas but you feel pinned in by the user base i suppose i would say like you don't want to you you don't want to make too many breaking changes but you also want a code base that's fun for you to work on kind of thing yep it's tough and then we got angular well yeah this is also one of the reasons why i like rust's uh release model is because like the releases are going to happen every six weeks regardless of how much work you do in those six weeks so like a release is going to come out no matter what. And so it's just easy to say like, oh yeah, it's fine to just push this in the next one because like now we're going to have a new release soon and like whatever, it's not a big deal. The release once a year kind of model is nice in some ways, but also just like terribly prone to people coming up with ideas in October and then hurriedly implementing them in September and then like argue with everybody all through November and then landing them in the beginning of December and then pushing out. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's tough. And it takes a lot of foundational work to make that, like, six-month released cycle or whatever it was that you mentioned. Weeks. That, weeks. Six weeks. Sorry. It takes a lot of foundational work to make that happen, right? So, like, we've talked oh, to Yehuda yeah. before about having, like, the feature flagging interface um, being key for that in both Ember and in uh, and in Rust. Definitely. This is something that I have completely and utterly reversed my opinion on over the last couple of years as a developer. I used to think that the work on trunk always and use feature flags thing was stupid and you should just use branches like anybody with a brain. But of course, I was totally and completely wrong. And now I seriously strongly prefer always working on master with feature flags. I think it's the best way to go. Um, of course, projects are also different. But I mean, my, my earlier hubris was uh, unwarranted, I think. Although it is kind of funny nowadays, this has just happened twice this week because um, I develop on uh, on nightly and then and then test on stable, right? And so I have the, my little doc shortcut pointing at nightly, and twice now there's been some method that I'm like, oh, that's exactly what I need, and then I write the whole thing around it, and I realize, oh, that method was stabilized in 1.8 or 1.9. <laughs> yeah, but only 12 weeks to wait. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what else? What else do you want to talk about? Should we move on to communism? <laughs> oh, no. More internet arguing. <laughs> okay, no communism. Is there anything you want to talk about, Steve? What are you excited about? Yeah, so let me think. What am I excited about? Uh, <laughs> that sounds really depressing. <laughs> let me think about what I'm excited about. Mm, oh, geez, I'm nothing. Sure. I don't know. Uh, I've actually been, so lately, I have like one hobby, which is playing this card game called Netrunner. And it's pretty much at this point the only thing I do that's not software because I have too many projects that I'm working on, which is some things I'm excited about. We'll talk about in a second. But one nice side effect of it is that uh, so January to March is like the 
store championship season. So what happens is there's like store championships that feed into a regionals, that feeds into a nationals, that feeds into a world championships. And they happen every year. And so in New York, we have a lot of stores. So there's a lot of store championships. And so it's meant that my weekends are actually like not spent programming lately. So like this this year, I've like actually not really programmed that much on weekends, which is very, very strange um, and, and unusual. But that's been kind of fun um, playing in that stuff. As far as having too many software projects going on, I have this project called Inner Mesos, which is very uh, interesting. Or I, of course, I would say that since I started it. But um, the idea of Inner Mesos sort of goes back a long time for me. So I learned C as my second programming language, actually, a very long time ago. And then basically when I found Ruby, I was like, why am I doing all this low-level pointer stuff? I'm never dealing with this again. Let me go do Ruby things. But in those like years, like in college, a lot of my friends were operating system developers, and we were actually working on an operating system written in D at the time. And one of the reasons I started going to Rust was to like, I, I enjoyed doing that low-level stuff and I kind of missed it. So I've been getting back into that world. And uh, I realized one of the reasons I left the super low-level programming world is because everyone has a very puritanical worldview. And what I mean by that is they think that the only way to enlightenment is suffering. Um, and, and like, if you haven't suffered enough, you have not yet learned uh, enough. And so I think that operating system development is actually not that hard. It's just that it's hard to learn. And the reason it's hard to learn is because the teachers are terrible, not because the material is hard inherently. So I started this project called Intermezos that um, is currently built off of um, another tutorial that this guy named Phil Opperman has built. So Phil wrote this tutorial about like starting up a little Rust kernel and it goes through the assembly you need to boot to get into a Rust like main function for a kernel. And um, I read it and I was like, wow, this is one of the first operating system tutorials that didn't feel smug and condescending to me. This is amazing. Um, and so I decided to take his tutorial, which is like, I know programming and I want to learn Rust and maybe a little bit of assembly. And I am going to, we share the same like boot assembly code, but then my, our tutorials are going to diverge a little bit. But Intermezos is like a book slash project that is, I only know JavaScript. I would like to start writing operating systems. How do I go about doing that? And so it explains in detail all of the stuff you need to know to like go from being a dynamic level, dynamic language programmer to writing an OS um, in assembly and Rust code. And so that's the thing I'm like really, really excited about because I like it when people are nice and not jerks. And that's the kind of like materials and community that I want to build. So we have five or six contributors at this point. And uh, it's just, it's great. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. That's, so it's going to be something that people could, it's like primarily a learning tool? Yeah, so as of right now, the problem is, is that writing takes a lot of time. So the code is actually farther along than the book is. So like where the book is right now sort of takes you to where you can get to a Hello World OS that prints something on the screen, but it's all in assembly. And where the Rust code is right now is like, it reads keys from the keyboard and echoes them back out, which is pretty cool. And so I'm kind of like writing. You can almost think of it as just like really extensive documentation, like really, really, really extensive documentation um, where I just explain how I'm building it as I'm building it as a means of like getting your foot into the OS dev space. The, the thing that really solidified this for me, I was talking about this one night with uh, my partner, Ashley, and uh, she, well, I was telling her about how interrupts work. So I was talking about the keyboard stuff. And I was like, yeah, I was reading a lot about keyboards today. 
Whenever you press a key on the keyboard, it sends uh, a message to this uh, interrupt controller, which then decides to forward the message to the CPU or not. And then that like looks up an entry in a table and it runs this code. And that's how you get the key out of the keyboard. And she was like, that sounds exactly like callbacks in JavaScript. And I was like, yes, this is totally true. <laughs> and this is like exactly why I think that low level languages is like, or low level stuff is not nearly as like mystical or like super hard as we like to present it as like the fundamental idea there is the same thing as like a callback in JavaScript. It's just a different syntax. That makes sense. And you mentioned like, so you have other weekend activities. When do you, when do you work on this type of stuff? Uh, I don't understand what the words work life balance mean exactly. Well, if you're, if you're enjoying it, then it's not, is it really work? I don't yeah, know. Like, exactly. That's part of it. I have been lucky enough to mostly be able to align the things that I need to do to survive with the things that I want to do anyway. And that's, that's, that's been very, very lucky of me to be able to do that. And so that's good. But like the problem is that it means that I don't have any kind of separation between like what is work and what is not work and when am I working and when am I not working? Like I went to my grandparents' house last weekend or last week to visit them because I haven't seen them in a couple of years. And like I was still working the whole time I was visiting them. Like I can't really take vacations. They stress me out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and this is like not really like a virtue exactly, but it's just how I've been after maintaining far too much open source for far too long is that I know there are so many bugs open that I have not yet even like fixed or whatever and I need to get on it. So yeah, when I when I take vacations, I often want to have like a day or two that's dedicated to like me doing whatever it is that I want to do, regardless of the fact that I'm on vacation. Yeah. So that's like if that's like I want to check in on my work email and I want to commit some changes to open source projects and that's what it is and it's my vacation and I'll do what I want with it. Um, yep. But it's interesting. Like I also have the problem where I don't have that divide between a lot of my hobbies and what I consider my work. Mm -hmm. So my wife will actually look at me sitting on the couch at night and I'll be like, you know, I've been like doing a lot of research into Elixir lately. So I'll just be, like cool. be playing around with Elixir and she thinks I'm working. You know, so right. she's like, well, I'm not going to bother him. He's working. And it's like, well, no, I'm not. I, I'm, I'm not working. You can bother me. Like, if you want to play a board game, let's do that. Right. Yeah. And so I, I have to work on that part of the uh, the work life balance. Like you said, like, I have a hard time saying like work life balance. I enjoy my work. So I don't like there's no part of me. There are times when I'm like, I really don't want to be doing this work. But most of the time I enjoy doing the work. So that that doesn't hit me very often. But the needing the separation somehow does. Yeah, my wife is also now a programmer, and I can tell you what, that does not help. <laughs> we um, have so conversations that's... about other things, but we talk about programming instead. <laughs> totally. Um, so yeah, I say Intermazes is my biggest my biggest project that I'm excited about. That, and I am re-maintaining Rescue nowadays again, although it's going slowly. Uh, I have some new people helping me out, and I'm trying to work on getting a new release out for the first time in like two years. So that's also a thing. Um, it's kind of fun. So you've, you've rescued Rescue? Again, yes, a second time. <laughs> so one thing that I did find interesting was just how quickly you ended up joining the Rust core team. How, what's that process actually look like for them? So what's interesting, this is actually a really good question because uh, the Rust governance model has changed significantly over time. And so I joined at a time when there was essentially like only a core team and no other structure. And so now we have a significantly different governance structure. So what, what happened with me would not really happen in the future. And we're still trying to determine 
what exactly that looks like. Because we definitely want to add more people to the core team eventually. We're not the only eight people that like should be in charge for life. That's stupid. So for me, basically what it boiled down to was I started working in Rust like three years ago at this point. And so the Rust world was even smaller than it was today. And so by virtue of me not having any work-life balance, I was doing like a really large amount of work on Rust at the time. And so I kind of got invited to the core team because I was one of the most active contributors. This also gets to another issue, which is very recently coming up a lot and I think is really important, which is talking about non-traditional contributions to open source projects. So for example, if you look at me as a committer, um, I actually am one of the most active pull request reviewers and one of the most active committers to Rust. But like my commits are almost always docs, not actual code. And so there's like some, sometimes there's some people outside of Rust world who are like, that's stupid. I don't understand why somebody who does not actually hack on the compiler is on the core team. And so for me, like, or the way that the team feels about this is that like, not just documentation, but also sort of the community work that I do is just as important as working on the compiler. And therefore we deserve to have someone on the core team whose focus is on stuff other than just like the literal language itself. Because, you know, a project is more than just the actual code that's part of the project. And so that's sort of how I ended up um, being on there. And it just it also just happened that we were growing to the point where we wanted to add a core team. There used to not really be an explicit core team. And so when we first made it, I was one of the like first members, um, sort of. Like me and Yehuda got added at the same time. And that was when the team became like a real thing, more than just like the couple people who had commit access. Or maybe that's just how I remember it because I want to feel special about myself. <laughs> um, but, you know, it was like the Wild West a long time ago. So, yeah. No, well, I, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. The, the issues team is one of the most valuable groups of people that we have on Rails. Yeah. Any large framework or programming language ultimately just needs a, a, number, a number of people to help deal with stuff, especially if it doesn't need to get dealt with by somebody who hacks on the compiler. Right. Just on like the couple of libraries I've maintained, I've had a couple people recently who are not affiliated with ThoughtBot at all or me who I've never met just like consistently chime in on other people's issues and other people's pull requests. And it's super appreciated. And I wish that like, you know that you get that like grid with the green dots on GitHub. I wish I could like give out green dots and be like, you get a green dot. Good job. Like, thank oh, you. Yeah. Thank you for contributing that. Like you didn't open the issue. You didn't close the issue, but you moved it along and or you like helped the, you answered the court, the person's question and they close it themselves or like you gave me valuable feedback on a pull request. So I didn't have to look at it first, like that type of thing. The politics of what counts as a contribution is very, very, very interesting, especially once we talk about GitHub contributions like as your resume or that people mm. think that's a thing. So a lot of my work in Rails was actually triaging issues and you don't get a contribution count for closing an issue. Like mm -hmm. someone can open an invalid issue, uh, say that, say maybe they open an issue in Rails 2, but we weren't maintaining Rails 2 anymore. So they open the issue, they get a contribution. I go through, I do the work of reviewing the issue of determining that it's like not actually valid and then say, sorry, this is won't fix or whatever and close it. I don't get a contribution on my graph for doing that, but they get a contribution for doing it, even though their issue is invalid and I still did work. Right. Yeah, I mean, I like to I like to see people's GitHub contributions, but I am also very cognizant of the fact that that doesn't encompass all contribution. Yeah. Um, and for a lot of people, contributing on GitHub is not something that is readily available to them. So. Yeah, absolutely. When we are treating open source contributions as like a big a big plus when you're applying for a job, 
and most people only do open source work on nights and weekends. We're basically self-selecting for programmers who are willing to program on nights and weekends. Correct. Yep. That's what I was. That's what I was kind of getting at with like the people who aren't available to commit, contribute to GitHub. And there's several reasons that might be the case, but it might just be like you work at a job where they're like, we own all of your <laughs> output from your work, and you know you can't contribute to open source from your company laptop, or like you know there's all sorts of things that people, all sorts of situations people find themselves in, um, aren't willing to risk contributing publicly. Definitely. There was a talk at um, Keep Ruby Weird this year where a guy showed a tool that he made that. Basically, you, you give it a pattern that you want your uh, contribution graph to be, and then it'll just continue to commit on random dates to, to get them to uh, turn the right dots green. So his uh, GitHub contribution thing is just his name marqueeing across. <laughs> it does marquee just very, very slowly. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Animated, animated GitHub contribution graph if you stare at it for long enough. Yeah, you just have to stare at it for like a few months. <laughs> yeah, and like... On Rails, for example, too, right? We have the contributors app because the the GitHub contributions graph doesn't even take into account things like commits that aren't made to master. Yep. And but, work is not yeah. a contribution. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you're if you're backporting bugs to old Rails versions, who cares? <laughs> but it's it, it's also kind of problematic even just having that, right? Because we have our little rankings, and then it, like we get people who it's just very obvious you are looking for every missing comma in our documentation and submitting each comma as a separate pull request because you're just trying to bump up that number. I'm always just trying to bump up that number, but I do try and make them a little more substantial. <laughs> I mean, yeah, and then you get to things like that lasts longer. So like, I still think I'm what, like 37th or 38th all time or something. And I haven't actually committed to rails in like two years at this point. And so I still have people of conferences still introduce me as like rails core team member, Steve. And I'm just like, this is, First of all, that was never true. And secondly, like, even if it was, it's not, it hasn't been true in a long time. So, you know, it's like, there's also these weird temporal effects around those kinds of graphs as well. Yeah. I've got a conference right now where they've got me listed as a Rust committer. And I've told, I've, cor- <laughs> I've tried to correct them and they said they would take it off and they never have. <laughs> have you committed to Rust? I have a commit to Rust. Well, yes. there you go. Technically. Technically. You do not have rights to commit directly, but you have committed. I guess committer is kind of an overloaded term, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Right. Another one. Well, and it's also funny because nobody has the right to commit directly. Only Boars. So Boars is the only uh, is the only contributor. So we have the continuous integration bot. So we actually mm-hmm. don't merge pull requests. We give a comment with a thumbs up, and then the bot reads it and does the CI, and then merges stuff in and closes it itself. And this also leads to a really awesome, hilarious situation where uh, you know, because every GitHub account has to have an email to sign up for the GitHub account. And so every release, when we list like, hey, thank you to the 120 people that have contributed to this release, uh, the bot is always in there. And its name is Boars. It starts with a B, so it's up near the top two. And so every once in a while, I've had people file an issue and be like, oh, you accidentally left your bot in on the, you know, contributors. And I'm like, Boars contributed a lot of code, actually. Like, <laughs> it totally, it totally deserves the recognition. Like, he's the hardest working Rust contributor <laughs> there is. And it's also funny, my second favorite story about Boars is there was one of those websites where you put in your GitHub name and it analyzes the kinds of contributions you make and then produces a summary about like how you've contributed. So it'll say like, you're incredibly active in these three languages, but you know, whatever. Um, and this particular one, it looked at number of comments left to number of commits made. And then it would give you like a chattiness rating. And Boars would always leave at least four comments per commit. Because whenever you would say, like, 
R plus, this is good, it would leave a notice saying like, this commit has been approved by this person. And then it would say, this pull request is now starting to be tested. And then it would say, all test pass closing and then close. So you'd have like minimum of three comments per every commit. And so this automated GitHub thing was like, it seems like Boris prefers talking much more than doing and doesn't contribute nearly as often as it likes to chime in on issues, which I thought was a pretty hilarious way of categorizing the continuous integration bot. Chiming so, in on issues. Yeah. Because we, 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 we totally stole High Five for Rails. Um, yeah, it's great. It is. And I've been thinking, like, Boars also seems pretty good because there are so many times where there'll be a pull request and it's like, this code looks fine, but CI hasn't finished running it, so I can't merge it. But one of the, the issues that I would see with that in Rails is that, like, every single pull request, if it sits for more than 20 minutes, ends up with a merge conflict in the change log file. Yeah. Do you guys have, do you guys deal with that at all in Rust? Do you guys have a change log file that, that gets kept up to date? Or? We, we write it by hand uh, during, like, release stuff, basically. As part of the release process is writing the change log. When okay. you do that every six weeks, it's not as daunting as when you do that every year. Right. And we also have a rel notes tag that mm. we tag pull requests that we think should go in the release notes. So part of writing those notes is just filtering by that tag and then writing them out and taking the tag off. That's really smart, actually. <laughs> you will cool. now volunteer to write all release notes for, yeah. for Rails. Congratulations. <laughs> well, I mean, I've been saying for a while, right? I want to switch us to a three-month release process after Rails 5 ships. So that can that can maybe happen. That can be your selling point. Be like, uh, we won't have to have merge conflicts in the in the change logs. That would be that would be a good way to sell it, actually. <laughs> yeah, That's I love sad. I love High Five though. It's great. For, if anybody hasn't seen High Five, it's basically a bot that knows who has contributed before. And if you open a pull request and it has not seen you, it leaves a message that's like, hey there, thank you so much for contributing to this project. Uh, make sure that you read the contributing.md for more information. And then it, it tries to determine who is the right person to review the pull request based on a couple of heuristics you can code into it. And it'll actually then say like, Somebody will be along to review this pull request shortly, possibly, and then at mention the person and assign the issue to them. So, like, if you open a pull request on Rust and it's inside of the doc directory, it knows to assign me as the reviewer of that pull request. And so it's a nice way of, like, making sure that everyone's pull requests at least get seen by someone in a reasonable amount of time. And, uh, you know, it's just, like, friendly to new contributors um, about that stuff. And if you've already contributed, it just does the assignment and doesn't bother with the, the message. And it must save it must save some work, like because some issues must get open that don't belong as an issue or or a pull request or whatever. And it must save some work that people then because it makes you know people have talked a long time about how like they love the contributing guides to be more front and center on GitHub, right? But it makes you like you get this email now and you're like, oh, I guess I'll click this link. And it's like, oh, actually, this is a, an internationalization thing and it goes in this other repo or whatever the case may be. I don't know. Yeah. But, well, it's also just because we have we've had an issue for a long time of just pull requests be becoming very stale, especially if it's something where, you know, back when I was still newer in Rails and less of a of an asshole uh, in pull request review, I would have something I'm like, I don't really want this, but I'm not opposed to this code un like enough to flat out reject it. So I'll just leave it and somebody else will make the decision later. And then it just sits there till the end of time. Um, and so one of the things that it's a lot like how when when there's some emergency and an ambulance needs to be called, you're never supposed to shout, somebody call an ambulance. You're supposed to point at somebody in the crowd and say, you call an ambulance. Right. 
And the fact that it is now that person's responsibility to either do it or get somebody else to do it ends up causing them to be much more likely to actually call an ambulance. The same thing seems to be true in the pull request assignment. Now that it's specifically your responsibility to approve it, reject it, or assign it to whoever is more appropriate for that, we have, we have much fewer pull requests now that come in that end up becoming stale. Totally. It's good to be specific, just as a general rule. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you, got, you guys have a lot of really well done tooling on Rust. Yeah, thanks. We try. I think it's like a, I don't know who started that culture exactly. I mean, Graydon did write a version control system long, long ago. So maybe that was just like a thing that he, uh, he started. But I, I enjoy the, the bot army. I think it's pretty great. Well, and even just, you know, investing in Cargo and Crates.io as early in the life cycle of the language as, as it happened. Yeah, yeah. So, what else? We talk about SQLite support and Diesel 0.5. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's good that, C- that Diesel is going to have SQLite. I think, it's, I think it's positive. I was listening to the last episode earlier today, and I think that somebody actually saying that, you know, this is one of the only embedded things and that's useful is like a good compelling reason to have support for it as opposed to just like, I like this database. Makes a lot of sense. It also proves out that like, I think, Sean, you made this point. I think it proves out that it's possible to add another adapter with the interfaces that you've provided. Yeah, I still want to have one more that's completely out of tree. We've identified at least two places where it's just not going to be possible to do it without us having to add a line that like a config flag that then goes out to a third party. Um, for things like the CLI, like there's just no way to make that pluggable. Hmm. Right. But yeah, but yeah, it helps. It helps to prove it out, and that's one of the big like the the roadmap for 1.0 is basically now all of the features I'm looking. at, I'm like, you know, implementing this feature might actually require us to make breaking changes, and then there are the features that are just like nice to have, but they feel very much like they are disjoint from our current APIs. All right. Cool. Should we wrap up, or what do you think, Sean? Yeah. yeah. Uh, unless we have anything else. Yeah, I don't think I have anything specifically. I feel like I have a thing. This is the worst when you're like, I know I have something else I want to say, but right, you're gonna I, you're gonna get off this call and you'll be like, there's this other thing I'm really excited about and I forgot. Yeah, yeah, mention. definitely. So and we're I don't never know. gonna let you come back on. So <laughs> <laughs> the one FN once. Uh, there's, there's Rust has three closure types and one of them is only callable one time and then never again, uh, and that's called FN once. Good um, joke. So, solid so Rust that, joke. Yeah, yeah. That's a, good, <laughs> <laughs> it's a broad, a broad audience will understand the yeah the type the type theory uh, type theory Rust joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we we definitely talk about Rust enough that I'm pretty sure all the listeners are just experienced Rust programmers at this point. I actually had a I made a good type theory joke on Twitter uh, earlier today. Bodil tweeted something like blah 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 th- uh, something about type systems and then it said uh, thank Milner. And uh, I said, I'll just infer that you're also thanking Hindley as well. Um, <laughs> felt pretty proud about that one. So, yeah. All right. With that, I think that's the end. That's, all right. that's, yeah. all I got. that's, that's, that's a, a good sign to wrap up. We'll end on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Steve. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you, they can uh, hit you up on Twitter. Is that a decent yeah. spot? Tweeting at me is good. Emailing is good. Uh, I try to just be an accessible person in general. So if you can't figure out how to talk to me, I, I'm probably doing it wrong. Okay. Uh, I'm on a free node all the time and Mozilla's IRC and uh, yeah, Twitter and email stuff. So it's all good. All right. We'll leave stuff in the show notes for that too. Awesome. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 51. As always, rings, reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any other episode, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, 
email us at host at bikeshed.fm or leave feedback on our website. Thanks for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>